we used to live pluck geese for quill pens. It was a very torturous thing to do, to pluck geese of their feathers while they're still alive. And nobody stopped because they cared about geese. They stopped because metal fountain pens were invented. And so knowing all of this, I started thinking, what if there were technologies that could do for farm animals what kerosene did for whales or what fountain pens did for geese? And I started wondering, could we just recreate the meat experience entirely? Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Traditional animal agriculture in America is big business to the tune of nearly $200 billion. But while the farm-to-table movement has given the food industry a small injection of ethics, the process of growing animals for food remains a dirty and often inhumane one. My guest today is trying to change that. Paul Shapiro is the co-founder and the CEO of the Better Meat Co., a B2B startup that grows plant-based proteins through a fermentation process, then uses those proteins to help other companies make plant-based meat products. So they're not making plant-based chicken nuggets. They're making the ingredients that make them possible, and they don't stop there. The Better Meat Co. also partners with major producers like Hormel and Purdue, who blend their proteins into actual meat products. Paul is the author of the national bestseller, Clean Meat, and a frequent TEDx speaker who spent years trying to influence public policy around agriculture as a lobbyist with the Humane Society. And today, he's seen as a visionary and one of the leading authorities on the future of plant-based and lab-grown meat. Paul grew up in the D.C. area, His mother worked in an animal shelter, and through her, he developed a passion for helping animals. His family always kept dogs as pets, and Paul treated them as if they were his own siblings. Once he made the connection between his pets and the animals that were grown for food, something inside him changed, and he hasn't eaten meat or any animal products since. When I was 13, a friend of mine showed me a video what happens inside of slaughterhouses and factory farms. And the only thing I was thinking was, what if these are my dogs? What if rather than pigs or chickens or turkeys, these were my dogs? And I knew that if I saw my dogs in these tight cages where they couldn't turn around for their whole lives, or they were being hung upside down and having their throats cut, or they were being abused in the ways that I was seeing, there's really nothing I wouldn't do to stop that. And As a result, I thought if I wouldn't want it to happen to my dogs, why would I want it to happen to any animal? And that led me at age uh, 13 to become vegetarian. And that set me off on a trajectory for the rest of my life of trying to figure out ways that we can reduce humanity's reliance on animals for food. So you're in middle school. And then what was that like middle school to high school when you make this declaration? And how was that received amongst your peers? Well, I think when I became vegetarian, it was not that abnormal. Like I knew other vegetarians at that time. But after a little while, like a very short time, actually, I started learning more 
about what I thought was vegan. And I was like, huh, that's interesting, vegan. Like these people don't eat meat, but they also don't eat eggs or dairy. And I understood why, like I thought it was a noble thing to do based on the mistreatment of animals in the egg and the dairy industries. But I thought it was kind of like holding your breath, you know, like you can hold your breath for a certain amount of time, but if you do it for too long, you'll die. And I thought that would be like the same as not eating any animal products whatsoever. I thought, you know, maybe you could go for some time, but eventually you'll just die. And so it wasn't though until I actually started volunteering at animal welfare organizations and started meeting people who I learned were not vegans, that were vegans. And many of them had been vegan for quite some time. And I thought, wow, okay, well, these people, obviously they're alive. I'm like looking at them, seeing like, you know, are they pale? You know, I want to see like, you know, how good do they look? And so one of them then showed me this interview with Carl Lewis. Now for your younger listeners, Donna, they may not remember who Carl Lewis was, but back in the early nineties, this guy was like a God. He was the number one Olympian in the world. He was an American athlete. He was kind of like Usain Bolt or a Michael Phelps, like this really dominant force in Olympic sports in, in track and field, especially. And I worshiped Carl Lewis. I had his poster on my wall. I thought this guy was like everything I aspired to be. And in the interview, he talked about how he was vegan and how being vegan helped his athletic performance. And I thought, wow, not only can you abstain from eating animal products, but you can actually thrive as the world's number one athlete and be vegan. Well, in his case, superhuman. <laughs> yeah, yes, in his case, superhuman, yes. Sadly, I never won any Olympic medals even after I became vegan. But yes, and so that, that led me as a 14-year-old to become vegan in 1993. And it was a... A transformative movement for me. I did it out of animal welfare concerns, but I didn't really expect it to have health or athletic benefits for me, but it did. I became much fitter than I was prior. And did you influence the rest of your family to become vegan then at that point? In some ways, yeah. So my, my brother did become vegan after this, although it was a few years later. And my parents, even to this day, you know, 30 years later, are nearly vegan. Probably like 90% of what they eat is, is plant-based. And that's amazing. It's great. I wish everybody uh, would, would follow in their footsteps. So I'd say, yes, there was some influence there. And my brother is still a vegan to this day. So you created a club in school. Tell me a little bit more about the club and, and why Compassion Over Killing. Was that the name of the club? It was. Yeah, there was no animal rights club. And at the time, it was really designed to be a high school club where we would do things like serve free vegan food to people. And we hosted speeches and passed out literature. We had like a book club where we'd read like animal rights books and so on. But pretty quickly, it became clear to me that I wanted to not just have a high school club, but I really wanted to have an organization. So I decided to shift it from being a club at my Washington, D.C. high school to being really like a D.C.-wide organization. And so I expanded it out, and more and more adults started getting involved. And one thing led to another, and throughout college, I continued running the organization. And then when I graduated from college, I started working at the organization and then hired several more people. And we did all types of things from conducting undercover investigations at factory farms and at slaughter plants. And we really wanted to show people what happened inside the meat industry and the egg industry and the dairy industry. And there was no YouTube or anything back then. So what we would do is these exposés and then work with like CNN or the New York Times or the Washington Post to take the footage that we were capturing and show it to millions of people. Of course, now, you know, you can shoot these videos and just put them online yourself. But back then, you were really reliant on what we now call the mainstream media to get that word out. 
And so we did that for a while. And I started becoming more and more concerned that merely raising awareness was not sufficient. There's a saying that, oh, if slaughter plants had glass walls, everybody would be vegetarian. Sadly, it's just not true. It became clear to me as the years went by that despite increasing awareness about the fact that the meat industry oftentimes is abusive to animals, meat consumption continued to go up. And it's not just going up because of population growth, though that's true too. It's even going up on a per capita basis, just per person. We're eating more meat than we ever have. And pretty much that's been nearly uninterrupted for decades of increased uh, per person meat demand. And so that led me to wonder, you know, what can we do? And I thought, in addition to raising awareness, which is wonderful, we also need to pass laws. And so that's why in 2005, I went to the Humane Society of the United States to work there to essentially be a lobbyist to try to pass laws to help protect farm animals. Paul says he was always passionate about the work he did with the Humane Society, and he's proud of what he accomplished there. Over 13 years, he served in various capacities, including Vice President of Farm Animal Protection and VP of Policy Engagement. He even worked with Congress to reject any proposals that could cause harm to animals, especially those raised for food. Paul made his mark by influencing legislation, but he started to think that the laws he helped get passed or rejected were only solving part of the problem. He had helped improve the lives of millions of animals raised for their protein, but he wasn't helping to reduce the overall demand for that protein. So eventually he wondered if he might be able to make an even greater impact by developing products that made it easier to reduce the need for animal protein. You know, if you think about how the animal welfare movement was founded back in the 1860s and 70s in the United States, really they were concerned about the treatment of horses in the streets. And the animal welfare campaigners back then waged all these crusades. They wanted watering stations for the horses. They wanted laws preventing you from excessively beating the horses. They wanted resting hours and Sabbath days. So one day a week, they couldn't be worked at all. But in the end, Henry Ford is the one who actually liberated horses. In the end, it wasn't the humane sentiment that freed horses from being our labor animals, but it was the invention of the car. Similarly, at that time, there were huge concerns about the sustainability of the whaling industry, despite the fact that whaling was basically the primary driver of our illumination. Most homes were lit by whale oil. And what freed whales was not sustainability or humane concerns. It was the invention of kerosene, because kerosene offered a much cheaper and more efficient way to light our homes. And within 20 years of the invention of kerosene, the whaling industry was decimated. Similarly, we used to live pluck geese for quill pens. And it was a very torturous thing to do, to pluck geese of their feathers while they're still alive. And nobody stopped because they cared about geese. They stopped because metal fountain pens were invented. And so knowing all of this, I started thinking, especially around 2013, you know, what if there were technologies that could do for farm animals what kerosene did for whales or what fountain pens did for geese? And I started wondering, could we just recreate the meat experience entirely? So in the same way that kerosene lights your room just like whale oil does, and then eventually electric bulbs displace kerosene, what if we could create meat experiences? And I didn't mean meat experiences like Boca burgers, which are kind of meat-like and satiate a vegetarian, but don't really fool an inveterate carnivore. But what if we could create experiences that really were identical to animal meat? And a whole host of people were thinking this at the time, 
And there's now an entire movement trying to do this through a variety of methods, whether through animal cell culture or plant-based protein isolates or microbial fermentation. And so eventually I decided to write a book on the topic. It's called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner in the World. And the basic premise of the book is to examine and chronicle the work of the pioneers who are working every day to try to put slaughter-free meat onto American tables. Well, after putting out that book in 2018, I had another choice to make, which is, did I want to continue writing about the people who I thought would solve this problem, or did I want to just become one of the people solving this problem? And that's why I ended up starting the Better Meat Co., because I thought it was a good way to put my own oar in the water and try to create animal-free meat experiences. In 2018, Paul published his best-selling book, Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. After the book came out, he was interviewed by food scientist Adam Yee, who is also the host of the food industry podcast, My Food Job Rocks. Later, Paul called him to talk about his idea for Better Meat Co. His goal was to get some leads on who he could partner with to get his idea off the ground. But it soon became clear that Adam was the person he needed. And so he quit his job working at Isogenics. And we clearly needed somebody with a lot of business background who understood business far more than than he or I did. And so I talked to a friend of mine named Joanna Bromley, who had a, a very pedigreed background, like she had gone to Duke undergrad for econ. She went to Harvard Business School. She worked at Bain. And she just was somebody who knew dramatically more about business than I did and asked her, would you be willing to quit your job at Bain in order to come start this company? And she said yes, and the company was founded. We knew that bootstrapping wasn't going to be a possibility for us. We had to invent new products, and it wasn't like we could just start selling products. You know, We had to actually create these. And so in order to actually pay ourselves, we needed to attract investors. And so we did a friends, family, and fools round and created a pre-seed round of $1.6 million that helped to kick off the company. So did you have any idea what your product would look like at this point? Well, it was a bit of a winding path, to be honest with you, Donna. So there are many ways. Let's just take fossil fuels as an example. There are many ways that we can recreate energy without fossil fuels, right? So you could use wind, you can use solar, you can use geothermal, you can use nuclear. There's lots of ways that you can produce energy without fossil fuels. Similarly, there's lots of ways that you can produce meat without animals. Some of them are just eating plant proteins like uh, Impossible or Beyond Burger. Some of them involve using actual animal cell culture so that you can grow actual animal cells to make real animal meat that is not an alternative or a substitute for meat, but is real actual animal meat simply grown from animal cells rather than from animal slaughter. But there's a third kingdom. There's not just plants and animals. There's also fungi. Now, most of the time when people think about fungi, they are thinking about mushrooms and they're not synonyms. So mushrooms are the fruiting body of the fungi. So if you think about an apple on a tree, that's the fruiting body of the tree, but you have the rest of the tree, the trunk and the roots and so on. Well, fungi, some of them do produce mushrooms, most of them don't, but there's a lot of them that only produce what's called mycelium. Mycelium is the root-like structure underneath the ground. 
So the mushroom you see, but underneath it, there's the root-like structure of the fungi. Well, most fungal species do not produce mushrooms at all. They're basically just mycelium, essentially. And the benefit of using mycelium rather than using mushrooms is that you can grow it quickly and you can have a meat-like texture with some of these species. So if you think about, for example, how mushrooms tend to have a more meat-like texture than plants do, but then you consider that the mycelium might actually be even more meat-like. And instead of waiting for a long time to grow mushrooms, which, you know, mushrooms are more expensive than meat often, instead of that, you can instead grow the mycelium in a quick amount of time for pretty economical rates. And that's amazing. It's truly like magic. And so what we at the Better Meat Co., which is the company that I co-founded in 2018, do is we run a microbial fermentation where we take microscopic spores of fungi and we inoculate them into a fermenter and we feed them. So think about it like this, Donna. A, a cow, you feed grass to a cow for more than a year and ultimately you get a steak. Well, what we do is we feed our little microscopic fungi, but we only feed them for less than one single day. And after less than a day, you get a food that looks like a steak. That's really amazing. It's harnessing the power of fermentation to create a better product. So you can create something that looks and tastes like animal meat, except with a tiny, tiny fraction of the footprint needed to raise an animal for food. Well, and while reducing the carbon footprint. For sure. So not only do we need to change the supply chain, but I think, do we not need to create a new food pyramid? I mean, is the food pyramid of that all of us were taught in nutrition mm -hmm. just gone by the wayside? Yeah, well, it depends. I mean, you know, before the food pyramid, we had the four food groups, which of course was completely uh, fallacious in terms of what humans actually need. But yes, I mean, look, even the food pyramid of old is generally recognized as not really the best way to look at our nutritional needs. The fact is that the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that eating as many whole plant foods as you can improves your health. The number one killer, the number one killer of Americans, both men and women, is heart disease. And we know that vegetarians have lower rates of heart disease. We know that a diet that's excessive in meat increases your risk of heart disease, of cancer, of diabetes, and more. And we know that eating a diet that's rich in whole plant foods, like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, and seeds, reduces your risk of all of those major, what we call diseases of affluence. These are diseases of affluent countries because affluent countries are the ones that can afford to eat these very high meat diets. So if you wanna reduce your risk, of a disease of affluence like heart disease or diabetes, reducing our meat consumption and animal product consumption in general tends to accomplish that when you're substituting it with these high quality whole plant foods that we can eat instead of meat. Hey there, it's Donna. I wanna invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like David Boko, who will be on the podcast next week to talk about using precision fermentation to create sustainable dairy-free cheeses in order to reduce our reliance on animal products. Cheese is the third largest greenhouse gas emitter of all food types behind beef and lamb. And the reason for that is because it takes 10 liters of milk to make one kilogram of cheddar, for example. So even if you displaced all of the milk in the world today with plant-based alternatives, you would have quite a small impact on dairy agriculture. So until you solve the cheese problem, you're not actually solving the dairy problem. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. 
They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So when did you realize that you had a product? As soon as we started fermenting fungi and realizing the product that was coming out of the fermenter was pretty much like raw chicken, it became very obvious that there was something that we could do here to mimic the meat experience in a way that provided a whole food that didn't require much processing that was really nutritious and delicious. And so when we started measuring the nutritional profile of these products, it was very clear to us that this was a superfood. What we produce, the mycoprotein that we produce, which we call Ryza, has more protein than eggs. It has more iron than beef. It has more fiber than oats, more potassium than bananas, and it naturally contains vitamin B12, which is typically lacking in the plant kingdom, but which we have because it is a product of microbial fermentation. And so that happened early on. This was back in 2018, and we realized, wow, look what we can actually accomplish here. The key for us has been trying to optimize this process. So if you think about meat production, let's just take chickens. Chickens have been selectively bred by geneticists for many, many decades to grow really, really fast and really big. So this is why the chickens of today inside of factory farms typically can't take more than a few steps before they collapse underneath their own unnatural bulk. But it enables us to slaughter chickens at about 40 days rather than at over 100 days, which if you were using chickens, let's say from 500 years ago, you would have to do. So we've more than halved the time needed to feeding them to get to slaughter weight. And that's a tremendous gain for efficiency, even if it's a tremendous problem from an animal suffering perspective. Now, what we though at the Better Meat Co are doing is utilizing an organism that has not been optimized, that has not been domesticated. It's essentially a wild organism comparable to using a chicken from a couple thousand years ago. And so what we need to do is essentially domesticate an organism to cause it to grow in the way that we want it to grow and cause it to grow in a way that is actually faster, more protein accumulating, more meat-like in texture. And so that's what we're engaged in now is, is an effort to optimize both the actual organism and the environment in which it's grown to make sure that we can produce the most efficient, the most sustainable type of meat experience on the planet. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you just described is not a surprise, but disarming to me because I have been to some smaller organic regional farms where the animals aren't necessarily for the dinner table <laughs> and they have names and they're roaming free. And I, I was really surprised to, to learn uh, just through a number of, of experts that cage free, free range don't necessarily mean what we think they mean. And organic doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. So it's like decoding, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Donna. So, I mean, look, I, I want to be clear. Cage-free is better than being locked up in a cage. Uh, you know, it's like saying is being in general population in prison being better than being in a solitary confinement? Yes, it is. But that doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean that it's cruelty-free. It just means it's better. So it is true that cage-free is better than being locked up in a cage. 
But we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that that solves all of the animal welfare concerns. And the issue that we are trying to accomplish at the Better Meat Co. is not trying to find ways just to treat animals better, though that's wonderful. And I think people should do that. But what we're trying to do is to render the factory farming system of animals totally obsolete. We want to create a world in which a factory farm is viewed as much of an archaic relic of an obsolete past as a whaling ship is. I want to create a world in which people look at an industrial slaughter plant and think, I'm so glad that we no longer have to do this. In the same way that people may think today, I'm so glad that we no longer have to whip horses to carry us around anymore, that we've invented better ways of transportation. I want people to think I'm so glad that we no longer have to subject animals to this type of cruelty and violence in order to feed ourselves. And we at the Better Miko are going to be part of creating that type of a future. So just take us on a tour of what we would see from like this, the various stages, because you described it happens pretty quickly in a day. So what would we see? What you'd see is something that looks like a beer brewery, Donna. So it, it said that instead of brewing beer, we're brewing protein. And so what we do is essentially have a system where you walk in and you're going to see essentially like steel fermenters, just like you would in a beer brewery. And instead of harvesting all of that liquid that then people will drink, which is like beer or wine or whatever, we squeeze out that liquid and the actual organism, which we have grown up. So imagine like if you take, you know, brewer's yeast as an example, we're not growing brewer's yeast, but that, you know, that is a microorganism. And then that would be the equivalent of what we're after is the microorganism that we've grown up in that liquid. So the liquid is not useful to us, but the organism itself is. And that organism in our case, which we call Riza, is a succulent meat-like product that is comparable to meat in texture, except it doesn't have any cholesterol, doesn't have any saturated fat. It's much better for you than animal meat. So your B2B, so who's buying your, your product? And are there particular products on the market that we can buy now? So we are partnered with Hormel Foods, the major meat company. We also sell to Purdue Farms. So think Purdue Farms is a big chicken company. They offer a product that's called Purdue Chicken Plus. Purdue Chicken Plus is 50% plant-based, 50% chicken. And that product is sold in over 7,000 supermarkets. It is available in Walmart and most everywhere else. And it's great, especially for kids. If you want to get your kids to eat more plants, but they just demand chicken nuggets, well, here's a good way because it looks and tastes like a regular chicken nugget. In fact, Food Network named it the number one best tasting frozen chicken nugget in America. So we're proud to provide the plant portion of that particular nugget, but we've got a lot to do. We are operating really what's a pilot facility here in Sacramento to produce our mycoprotein, Riza, and we need to build a facility that is dramatically larger than the facility that we're currently in so that we can have a river of our mycelium flowing through the food industry to help reduce the need to raise and slaughter so many animals and to help reforest the planet. So when you go into these conversations in the meat industry, what that conversation's like, you get resistance or are they open to the conversation? How much education are they willing to have with you based on your, you know, your approach to the conversation? How does that typically go? You know, Donna, if you go back to the 1990s and you think about the film wars that we had between like Kodak and Canon, you know, they were all doing print film, obviously, and they knew about digital. But Kodak was concerned that digital was going to cannibalize their core business of selling negatives and prints and all the chemicals and everything else. 
Well, Canon thought that it would cannibalize their core business, but they also thought it was the future, and so they embraced it. And we all know what happened in the end. Kodak went bankrupt, and Canon is now the largest manufacturer of digital cameras on the planet. And what the purpose of telling this story is that the meat industry is kind of similar, that you have Kodaks and you have Canons in the meat industry. Some in the meat industry are like Kodak, and they say, hey, listen, we've been slaughtering animals forever, and we're going to keep on slaughtering animals forever. You have others in the meat industry, though, that are way more forward thinking and are way more like Canon. And they are saying, you know, look, we are protein providers and we don't care if we, it comes from animals or not. Canon still sells us the same thing. It's a way of capturing our memories. We still get to capture our memories in the same way that Netflix sells us the same thing that Blockbuster did. Right. We still watch things that entertain us. Well, the difference is that it's just way more efficient and convenient to use Netflix than to go to the video store. It's way more efficient for us to get our photos instantly rather than having to wait for hours or days. And the same is going to be so with meat, that we will still have these companies, these food companies selling us meat experiences, but it will come not from the way that it used to, animal slaughter, but it'll come rather from a new efficient method that everybody will prefer, just like everybody prefers Netflix over going to the Blockbuster video store and everybody prefers getting your photo within less than a second, everybody will prefer getting your meat in ways that are just way more sustainable, way more humane, and way more efficient than the current methods that we have at our disposal. So we talked about sprouts earlier and like how easy it is to grow sprouts. Will there ever be like a home-based solution to your approach? I mean, is this something that you're going to eventually have like our own clean meat growing kit? Yeah, this is a wonderful idea. Nobody's really done this yet, but imagine a future in which, you know, you, you know well, think about today, actually, Donna, you go to your friend's house, you know, let's say she has like a bread maker or an ice cream maker on the kitchen counter. It's kind of cool, but it's not really remarkable. Nobody's going to be like, wow, that's amazing. Well, imagine that you go to your friend's house and instead of an ice cream or a bread maker, she has a meat maker. And she just drops little tea bags of either, you know, animal stem cells or maybe microbial proteins in there that, you know, you can order online and you grow your own meat right there, right on your kitchen counter. That would be truly incredible. Now, it would take a long time to do that, not, not with uh, fungi proteins, but if you want to use animal cells, they do take weeks to grow. But there's lots of people who brew their own beer at home, and that takes weeks as well. So I think that there probably is a market in the future for this type of in-home meat production. And you could even envision at a local restaurant, perhaps, that they, instead of just brewing their own IPA in the back, maybe they're brewing their own meat. Wouldn't that be cool? You can go there and they have like their own local artisanal type of meat that they're growing right there. That's amazing. Fun. And so you have Purdue and you have some of these other big companies. Are they championing this as well? Are there insiders with the evangelist in the industry now promoting this as like the industry needs a change? Yeah, there are many evangelists, I think, in the meat industry who are welcoming of innovation and want to see change. We want to help them. We want to partner with them. So for folks in the meat industry who want to create a better industry, who want to create, who want to be the canon of the future rather than the Kodak of the past, the Better Meat Co. is a perfect partner for them. Do you think there'll be, you know, the grocery store supply chain will also embrace and, and want to adopt this as being part of their brands? I do. And it's already happening. So you're like Kroger and, and Kroger has already created its own lines of plant-based meat as an example. So rather than just going and buying brand name plant-based meat, you can already get private label plant-based meat. Trader Joe's has its own brands as well. This is going to continue to grow and it's going to continue to increase in popularity to the point where 
people will wonder, why do we ever do it any other way? One of the things that really concerns me about this industry, we look at these viruses and the pandemic that we've just all gone through. Oftentimes they are animal or plant-based, but typically agricultural something, right? And this seems like this would better meet and your whole process would actually help eliminate or reduce these challenges. Yeah, so raising animals by the billions is a perfect way to increase pandemic risk. The United Nations recently put out a report. It's called Preventing the Next Pandemic. And in it, the UN looks at what are the top reasons that we might have another pandemic? What are the causes of the next pandemic? Number one on the United Nations list is increasing demand for animal protein. Raising and slaughtering billions of animals, oftentimes who are confined wing to wing, beak to beak, or snap to snout, it's like playing viral Russian roulette. It's just a way to uh, amplify pandemic risk. Number two on the UN's list is intensification of agriculture. So confining animals in tighter and tighter spaces. Number three on their list is the bushmeat trade or slaughtering wildlife for meat. And so the number one, two, and three reasons the United Nations says we're likely to have another pandemic all relate to humanity's desire to consume meat. So if we know that eating animals is a driving factor for pandemic risk, if we know it's the number one cause of deforestation, the number one cause of antibiotic resistance, the number one cause of animal cruelty and more, why not try to recreate meat without animals? People want to eat meat. That would be great if that weren't true, but people want to eat meat. Generally, societies eat about as much meat as they can afford. It's the same way I, you know, I would be thrilled if people wanted to walk and bike more, but you know, people really seem to like to drive. So we need to create cars that don't use fossil fuels. Similarly, I would be great if people would eat bean and rice burritos and lentil soup and hummus and so on. That's great. That's what I eat. I wish more people would eat like that. But people really want to eat meat. So we need to give it to them, but we need to give it to them without animals. And that's what the premise of my book, Clean Meat, is about, and what the premise of my company, The Better Miko, is about as well. That was Paul Shapiro, co-founder of The Better Meat Co. A lot of big meat companies today are paying attention to the growing movement around plant-based meat and meat alternatives. Companies like Cargill, Tyson, and Maplewood Foods have begun making investments in plant-based startups, in some cases acquiring them outright. But Paul says The Better Meat Co. is less focused on creating new plant-based alternatives for consumers, and it's more interested in helping bigger meat companies use fewer animals. Today, plant-based meat has less than 1% of the total meat market. So Paul says the greatest impact his company can have is by increasing the amount of actual meat coming from non-animal slaughter methods. The result could cut the number of animals we consume by the billions. It's a goal Paul says he would happily devote his life to. Thank you for listening. Follow Before Happen on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happen is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.